Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. One common issue with the history of colonialism is that often the story we're left with is the story told by the conqueror. This shouldn't be a surprise, there's even a very common idiom about this phenomenon, but even knowing this, it can sometimes be hard to remember that the conquered were not passive participants in their own subjugation. They usually defended themselves, and it was often a closer thing than the victors would prefer us to believe. One such close call took place in India at the end of the 18th century in the Kingdom of Mysore under the leadership of Tipu Sultan in his fight against the East India Company and later the British Crown. So it allowed this one man to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of the world's great powers. Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Dan McGuinness. Hello. Hello. And uh, today, today I actually didn't give you a lot of warning about what I wanted to talk about because uh, November is a little bit busy of a month for me. Things were a little bit rushed and uh, we just kind of threw this together. So instead of going straight to the topic, let me tell you two different, very uh, interconnected stories, um, specifically about what it's like to consume historical media uh, especially fiction, as someone who reads a lot of history. I think there's a couple ways you can go. You can either get really mad at it, which is something I've seen actually you, Dan, specifically do anytime someone says we're in, in a movie. Um, uh. Or... <laughs> Or uh, you can just kind of roll with it. And generally speaking, I, I try to kind of roll with it when it's a, a history, uh, you know, novel, show, movie, whatever. Yeah. And usually that works pretty well for me, actually. I, I, I don't get too uptight about the, the little details. Sometimes it can be funny, but whatever. And actually, one of my favorite sort of escapist series of books um, the sort of thing that I'll, you know, buy a new one and toss it in the bag when I'm going to the cottage or something like that is the, uh, sharp, uh, novels. Oh, of course. Yeah. By Bernard Cornwell. Um, they are delightful in that they are just, just so simple. There's nothing unexpected about them, right? Like there's no, the, the good guy is going to win. The bad guy is going to lose, you know, the hero, the main hero, Richard Sharp, he's going to stick it to some snooty, uh, British officers who are, uh, you know, they, they have more money than brains. Uh, you know, he's, he's going to kiss the girl and that's going to be the book, right? Like that's, that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. A simpler time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's for people who don't know, it's based in the uh, Napoleonic Wars. So like there is a level of sort of 
you know, Indiana Jones style cartoonish villains in the form of mm-hmm. the French soldiers. But like also, you know, Sharp has some begrudging respect for a lot of the regulars. It's more the officers he has problems with. You know, you don't have to think too deeply about it. But there is a couple of these books, and I've always just been a little bit hesitant to get into them. Uh, they are uh, very early in the character's military career, and they take place in India during a series mm. of campaigns that, I don't know, I, I, I've i always just had a bit of a bad feeling about them, I suppose. And I think the reason for that is that while I'm pretty, and maybe this is something to examine, I'm pretty okay with just like, you know, making the the Napoleonic army sort of a, a very flat, very shallow uh, antagonist for a book. There's something that doesn't quite sit right with me um, when it comes to taking the uh, colonialism that was happening in India at the time and applying that same sort of formula to it, right? Like that simplification. Yeah. And I've just, I don't know. I've never picked those ones. Well, I feel like when you're dealing with the Napoleonic army, it's like a, a fair fight between equals, mm-hmm. whereas colonialism inherently is just not. So it's yeah. not, I can see it not being comfortable to read about. Yeah. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to that simplification in a way that adequately captures, I think some of the dynamics that are at play there, especially yeah. when your protagonist is British because inevitably you know that that cartoonish antagonist is going to end up most likely being Indian. And that just, it's icky. It is not a good look. I do not, you know, we'll see. Someday I'm sure I'll get to them, but haven't quite gotten there yet. The second piece of media that I wanted to bring up is a really wonderful podcast that I found uh, last year. It's from um, the ABC, so uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And it's uh, it's just started its second season, but it's a show called Stuff the British Stole. Oh. <laughs> and it is like very, it's a, it's a very limited number of shows. They're fairly short, but they're really, really well produced. And so each episode of this podcast is about an actual like physical object that was stolen. It's usually now in the British Museum or or something similar. And a lot of it is looking at how it's currently presented or at least until very recently presented in this very like sanitized version one one um one phrase that stuck out to me like constantly throughout this show was the was the phrase uh, of contested origins or <laughs> of contested ownership and it's kind of like really like come on guys you know what happened here it was stolen like it was absolutely stolen and yep. It's it's you know it's it's easy to look at that that title and and maybe the premise of it and look at it as like oh we're gonna do a bunch of uh, England bashing here and uh, like there is some of that yeah but like there are actually very nuanced positions that are taken by people who to this day are affected by the events that are that are examined there it's it's a it's a really well done show I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough but the first episode of the first season of this show is about an object called. Tipu's tiger. And this object is a pipe organ that is set into a wooden statue, almost life-size, of a Bengal tiger mauling an English soldier to death. What? And 
when you turn the crank that works the bellows of this organ, it lets out this kind of moan that sort of people are saying sounds a bit like a scream. And that part's cool and all, and you can play it and it's really out of tune and whatever. But also the British... (laughs) The British soldier flails his arms as he's being eaten by this by this tiger. And it's incredible. Like it's 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 a really interesting piece. And that's the piece they focus on for the first episode. And it goes into all this detail about this man, Tipu Sultan, who ruled this massive kingdom around the turn of the 19th century, or just before the turn of the 19th century, and went toe-to-toe with the British. And I just never heard of this guy. And mm-hmm. as I'm listening to this in horror, I'm realizing that that bad feeling I had about those sharp books, one of the three sharp books that are set in India is called Sharp's Tiger. Okay. And I'm going, it's, it's got to be the same tiger. Because like, it's always about some object. And usually if there's some sort of like historical detail that happened, you know, there was a, there was a battle in Portugal where a... Where a, a um, you know, a, a gunpowder reserve was exploded and nobody really knows who did it. And so for the purposes of this historical fiction, well, it was sharp and it was done on a purpose and whatever. Right. Mm. And nobody really knows who took some of the wealth from this man, Tipu. And I just ha- and nobody knows who killed him. And I just have this feeling like it's got to be him mm. in the book. It's got to be him. Okay. And I look up the synopsis and sure enough, it is. So today I want to talk about Tipu. And I want to talk about the kingdom of Mysore, which is uh, where this whole story takes place, because it's something that I never really heard of before. I, I like I just don't really know a lot about Indian uh, history. I know that the British did terrible things there, um, but I've always sort of avoided it on, I would say, the excuse of saying, well, it's really complicated and it's really long and I don't know anything about it yet. Yeah. And I'm never going to sit down and just start reading all of Indian history and then eventually do an episode. I wanted to start doing it. That's something that I'd like to start doing a little bit more with the show. Uh, Do a little bit of Indian history. Do a little bit of maybe African history. Do a little bit of Chinese history. Things that are a little bit more outside of my comfort zone. And I'm not going to be able to do them until I start pinning down little individual stories like this Mm. to do. So this is like... I'm, I'm talking about all this because, you know, it's a personal connection to the story. It's also, this is a lot of times the way that I come across topics for HI 101, if it's not something that the guest has brought directly to me. Like, this is the sort of thing that gets me interested enough to do all of this reading. So that's how we start today's story. Our topic today is Tipu Sultan. It's about the Anglo-Mysore Wars. And it's about the slow process of the British taking over the subcontinent of India in this really interesting way in which I don't think they ever necessarily set out to take total control, gain total power. And yet that's what happens anyways. So Hmm. that's our topic for today. Well, I'm excited because this is something I really don't know very much about. Yeah, I I found it really interesting. I found it really engaging going through this. So I'm excited to share it with you and, and, you know, by proxy with the listeners. It's it's a it's a really interesting one. It's not terribly long, but it's it's very engaging, or at least I, I really thought so. So I think basically any story of the British in India has to start with the East India Company. Um, what's your familiarity level with the East India Company as a as an organization, as a historical force? Uh, do you know much about them? Uh, not a lot. My impression is that the uh, the Dutch started the Dutch East India Company 
And the British were like, hey, wait, we need to get in on that and uh, promptly started their own quasi-governmental corporate fleet. Um, Right. And my impression is also that they maintained a a semi-state involvement in this corporation that had wide-ranging authority to basically be an arm of the British Empire uh, for a long period of time. Uh, as part of the expansion into uh, many uh, colonies, but in particular over principally on the Indian subcontinent. But that's not not much beyond that. No, I'd say that's a fairly good amount of groundwork, if nothing else. The one thing I will mention, and I only I only mention this because honestly, I thought the exact same thing. The East India Company, the, the English East India Company or British East India Company, depending on when we're talking, it's actually two years older than the Dutch East India no. Company. Yeah, really. I know. I, I I absolutely thought that it was exactly what you said. They saw the Dutch doing well and went, well, we need to get in on that action. And it's actually not quite the case. Now, it is true that a lot of what the East India Company does in its early years is compete with the Dutch East India Company mm. because, if, you know, when it's founded, its main goal is to extend English commerce into the Indian Ocean with the specific purposes of bringing down the costs of luxury goods, namely spices. And the spice trade is one of those things that's, I don't know how many episodes it's come into at this point, but the thing to understand about the spice trade is that there are a lot of spices where in this era, they grew on like one island in the Pacific. Mm. And its cost was as much tied up in knowing exactly which island to get this one specific plant from and hoarding that knowledge as a corporate secret as it was actually any of the logistics of transporting it from uh the indian ocean back to europe right like it's this it's this um i don't know it's this weird secrecy around all of it right it's the real source of the phrase trade secrets really it's yeah I, i i could see that being very much the case um, so yeah, I, I mean, all of this starts kind of a little bit before the company is founded in 1600. I'd, I'd say the the Spanish Armada in 1588 is really where things start getting uh, wild for everyone who isn't Spain and Portugal. Um, you may remember from other episodes, Spain and Portugal basically went to the Pope uh, after the founding of the uh, or the finding of the or even before the finding of the New York New World and said. Um, yeah, Spain's going to take to the west of this line, Portugal's going to take to the east, and we get control of the entire world uh, just around this line. And the Pope said, okay, um, which is which is wild. And, and what's even wilder is that most people kind of abided by that for a while, um, or at least as long as the Spanish could uh, enforce it. Uh, but in 1588, the Spanish Armada is defeated, uh, you know, the divine wind, all of that stuff. And it kind of breaks... Spanish and Portuguese monopoly on the oceans. It's sort of Britain or rather England's uh, entry into the the naval sphere, which is where they're going to dominate for the next, you know, 300 plus years. Mm -hmm. The, The company itself is just this bizarre mix of like very arcane and very modern in ways that are always really surprising when I get into it. Like it's like it's run by like a board of directors and it's got shareholders and it pays dividends. Like it's it's you know, like it's it's a modern corporation in a lot of senses in terms of its like corporate organization. Mm-hmm. But also like it does colonialism and 
you know, it has like this weird, like unilateral power of monopoly in, in various places. Um, I, I can't remember where I saw it recently, but somebody mentioned that they carried out witch burnings at one point, nope. <laughs> like, you know, like, but, and, and it's, it's one of those things where it's hard to keep in mind, but like, this is approximately the right period for some witch burnings. It's not, it's not like out of place in time. Yeah. It's just weird for the same body that does witch trials to also, you know, pay dividends on its, its quarterly earnings. Right? Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of bizarre. Now, do you know whether it was organized as a corporation before the Dutch East India Company was? Because my understanding was the Dutch East India Company was the first publicly traded corporation in the world. It, uh, that's that's the point, is the publicly traded corporation. It was not a publicly traded corporation right. when it began. It had shareholders. They were joint owners rather than public shareholders. Okay. And that's probably At least why when it both of us thought that the Dutch East India Company came first. I think so. The Dutch East India Company was also better organized out the gate. Like they got to a lot of those spice islands a lot sooner. Oh, okay. Um, they held a lot more monopolies. Um, so, so there's there's that going on as well. But uh, in any case, essentially to understand the East India Company, there's three things that you need to know about them. Number one is that the charter that they're granted by the British English Crown. Sorry, I keep forgetting we're before the merger. Mm -hmm. The charter that they're granted before by the English Crown basically gives them exclusive access to these lucrative markets. So it's not just saying, yes, you're allowed to operate here. It's saying you're the only ones allowed to operate here as long as you can maintain your influence in that market. Right. That's a very powerful thing that they want to hang on to. Number two... The charter from the crown depends on continued profitability for its shareholders. As in, their right to exist relies on them turning a profit every single year that they exist. Wow. If the, if the East India Company loses money for three consecutive years, or perhaps more than three consecutive years, I can't remember... Um, I believe they can ha have losses for three consecutive years. If they have fourth consecutive year of losses, they will be dissolved. Wow. Like full stop. They're gone. So they need to make money. That is that is more intense pressure than than modern companies tend to face. I mean, lots of modern companies are, are you know, specifically trying to ride as close to the losses line as they possibly can for tax reasons like mm -hmm. you know we've we've come a long way in in you know corporate shenanigans but uh yeah it's it's a lot of pressure now mind you they're being given exclusive access to the entire indian ocean which means all the spice islands it means india it means china um it's got like they've got ample opportunity to make money but they need to continue. They can't become complacent. Right. The third and final thing that you need to know about the charter, uh, about the charter that they have from the crown is that it is reinforced and supported by the crown through the use of military force. As in the corporation or rather the company is allowed to raise their own armies. They are allowed to conquer nations. They are allowed to raise their own flag on foreign soil as long as they can do so while still turning a profit. And they have the full support of the crown in this to the point where British troops and British ships are occasionally sent in support of company 
armies and company navies. Yeah. While I was reading about all of this, I could not stop thinking about the number of very powerful corporations in our lives to this day, like just just all of them around us every single day, and then imagining if like they had the force of the U.S. Army behind them to boot. I think there's a, a handful that all of us would think about immediately, and uh, it's not a pretty picture. No, it's it's terrifying. The things they're able to pull off without having standing armies yeah. is already pretty bad sometimes. And this is just like, no, raise raise thousands of men in your armies. Not a problem. Just just don't spend so much on your armies that you lose money. That's all we're asking. The earliest form of capitalism was the purest. Oh, I mean, again, again, I, I'm just imagining. Yeah, like the, I, I'm imagining a major world government sending their army in to support the actions of a private, essentially, corporation. And it is... It is hellish. That is that is some that is some cyberpunk stuff happening right there. <laughs> yeah. And yet that is the reality of the Indian Ocean for a couple hundred years. Um, it's it's dystopian. 17th century British people. Turns out cyberpunk as heck. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's wild. So, I mean, the, the first, you know, the first century or so of the company's existence, it grows fairly slowly, right? Like the initial investment I saw was something along the lines of the equivalent of like $4 million today. Hmm. Like it was pretty small. They only had a couple ships. Like, it, it, you know, they have to build to these huge sizes. But like over the years, they, you know, managed to, and, it's, and, and we're going to focus on India, obviously, for the purposes of this story, but they managed to install a couple of factories. Um, factories in this sense are like the, the old timey sense, not like a, a manufacturing center. A factory was a place where uh, they were essentially like small free trade ports, like a, like a duty free shop, basically, oh. except you're imposing it on the people where you're putting it. <laughs> no. um, they would often they would often have like special laws uh, negotiated with um, local authorities. So as long as you're an English sailor within the factory, English law would apply to you rather than local law, things like that. Mm. Um, but essentially ports and ki kind of combination port fortress kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, they'd established a couple factories. They they won a couple more in some like uh, dowries and things to the, <laughs> the to the English crown. Wow. Like oh yeah, no no no, it's it's like oh yeah, a Portuguese princess marries into the English uh, royal family, and then and, you know here's here's a port in India that you can have. It's oh, wow. cartoonish, right? Like it's the it's the. I don't know. Um, you know the 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 political cartoon of the kings playing chess but yeah. with real people, and yeah, it's 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 wild. By the time you get to 1690 or so, though, so once it's been in place for about a century, you're finally at a point where the East India Company has grown so much that they are fielding armies against uh, independent Indian states. So in 1690, the East India Company goes to war against. Uh, the Mughal Empire in India. And the Mughal Empire is like the uh, the largest power at that point in time in India. Um, India is a very, I, I suppose the closest analogy I could use, and it's a very imperfect one, don't get me wrong, but the closest analogy I can come up with is like the Holy Roman Empire uh, yeah. in around the 1700s, 1600s, where you do have an emperor, but then you have a lot of independent principalities under that, that 
owe the emperor fealty, but, you know, the, the amount of direct political power is in question and intention, uh, something along those lines for is, is sufficient for our purposes today. Right. Now, the the company does lose against the Mughal Empire in 1690. It's a pretty it's a pretty significant loss for the Brit the British, uh, the English. Sorry, we're not quite there. 1707, I believe, is the line. Um, but the company loses is the point. Then, in the early 1700s, uh, and it has nothing to do with the company at all. There's a series of crises within the uh, the royal family of the Mughal Empire, and things start fracturing really quickly. There's succession crises and things like that. And these, these crises result in um, a bunch of power plays by some of the more powerful principalities in India. Each one's trying to gobble up some of their weaker neighbors. They're trying to make plays against their stronger neighbors to try and gain as much influence over the subcontinent as possible. The English see this happening and they go fantastic we can make this work and they start playing neighbors off of each other to try and gain as much influence as possible largely through offering the services of their army in support of various government players now would would the, these armies have fought against some of these neighbors or was was it the mughal state that they were primarily fighting against no they would have been fighting against neighbors mostly um, the, the Mughal uh, state is collapsing so quickly, especially after 1720, that they don't really need to do anything, uh, much of anything at all to help it along. Um, in fact, they're almost entirely reduced to the area just around Delhi by the 1730s or so. Wow. And most of their territory is actually, especially in the north, has been captured by something that's called uh, the Maratha Empire. Okay. So there's still there is still a Mughal emperor through all of this, but it's yeah they're 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 basically entirely diminished from any sort of political power. Uh, no, the company would have mainly been fighting against these various neighbors. Um, they're not the only ones getting in on this action. The French are also making plays for influence in India using these same tactics, right? Like it's essentially proxy wars, right? Like they're fighting. You know, French allies are fighting against British allies in a lot of cases, but it's very similar to like Cold War Africa uh, in a lot of senses, where it's not nearly so important that uh, uh, which side you ally with. It's much more important that you're with the side that's against your enemy's allies. Did I say that right? I got myself confused yeah. there, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. It's picking team red or team blue. It doesn't matter who the team actually is as long as you're feeling like you're on the right side and you're getting some sort of support for it. Right. Um, it's not just the French, the Dutch are involved too. There's a number of colonial powers that, that sort of try and play this game. But by the 1750s, just and, and we don't have to get into all the details because they're very messy and complicated. By the 1750s, the English are really the the only powers that are left in a significant capacity in India. The rest of them have lost so much influence or have found it so expensive to keep this fighting up that they've withdrawn. Um, there's a couple of small ports that are kept, uh, you know, at least friendly to a couple of powers. Um, there's a couple of trading posts, things like that. But in terms of like state involvement, Britain really just had an edge in that the East India Company can either be the British state or not be the British state as uh, circumstances best dictate, right? right? Whatever is most convenient, that's what it is today. 
plausible deniability. Well, not just that, but also like you can you can ask like the, the Quran can ask the company to fight on their behalf in India without really a, a, a committing a whole lot in the way of state resources because they're dipping both into regular state resources to fund this and into company funds to fund this. Right. It's a it's a it's a double pot they, they can pull from. So by 1750s, uh, we're basically looking at the situation is is more or less as follows in, in India, at least grossly simplified for our purposes. OK, uh, the British are mainly focused on the uh, southeast coast uh, around um, a city state uh, known, known as uh, Madras. Uh, they also have a, a significant amount of influence in the uh, northeast, uh, in a in a region that would be known as Bengal, so around the the Bay of Bengal, right? right. Um, some of which is not in modern day India; it's it's spilling out to the east. And they these these two regions of of major influence, like direct influence, where the company is essentially the government. They're not connected, and the British would like them to connect along the entire eastern coast of India. Okay? So that's that's the British. Um, in the very far north, uh, you have the Maratha Empire that we already talked about very briefly. They've gobbled up, like, basically the, the northern half of India, more or less. Um, again, wow. this is very imprecise. I'll probably post a map just so people have a little bit better idea. Um, but, you know... This is an audio medium, so here we go. We also have uh, right in the center of uh, of India a fairly large state called Hyderabad. Um, this is ruled by a, a ruler called the Nizam, and this is a state that is mostly landlocked but fairly resource rich. On its eastern borders is the uh, British holdings in Madras. And then finally, our, our, our final large player for this, this story is a kingdom that's called Mysore. And that's going to be the main one we're going to focus on today. Mysore is uh, generally along the uh, southwest coast of India, so what would be known as the Malabar coast. Okay. And it extends a pretty good way in t inland into India. So it is borders on the Maratha Empire to the north. It borders on uh, Hyderabad to the northeast. And there are a couple other small states around here that are, are you know, kind of swept up in all of this, but these are going to be our main players, okay? So the Maratha Empire, uh, Hyderabad, the British, and Mysore. Okay. In the 1750s and 1760s, as the British are trying to con uh, to consolidate their holdings, they actually go to the Mughal Empire, uh, the Mughal Emperor, who, who, as I said, there still is one. His, his name is uh, Shah Alam II. And in 1764, they get a proclamation, I would argue somewhat under duress, <laughs> um, for a... <laughs> for as a company collectively for a role uh, that's known as the Diwan. And the Diwan is uh, roughly translated as like the revenue collector. Okay. So they are given a contract by the Mughal Empire, uh, Emperor to be like the tax collector and by extension the administrator for these regions that they currently hold. So the biggest one is is uh, Bengal. It's, it's 
very, very large. It's very lucrative for them. But it effectively gives them a, a level of legitimacy of statehood in India that makes it a lot less um, tenuous for them to be there occupying land, uh, creating policy, all of the other things that a state does. Right. Now, again, the circumstances are extremely questionable, but here we are, right? At this time, was the Mughal emperor nominally still the head of state for areas like Bengal? Yes. But in practice, as a result of the fighting you described earlier in the century, that wasn't really the case? I mean, yeah, it, it's it's a matter of not really having the 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 sort of uh, direct power the political power to exert that you know symbolic power yeah. in a in a meaningful way to actually to actually rule okay. uh, uh you know on a day-to-day -day level and so them giving this control to the british what they're trying to do uh what, what the emperor is trying to do in that case is trying to gain some protection from their enemies of which there are many from the British in return for granting them legitimacy that they aren't going to actually miss because they aren't able to exercise it themselves anyway. Right. Okay. So we also mentioned Hyderabad, uh, very much in the center of the, of the continent, um, doesn't really have anything in the way of ports. Uh, Madras would have been the closest port for them actually, but now it's under British control. They are extremely like the Nazim is extremely upset about British rule and the legitimization of British rule in India. Understandable. But he also doesn't have the trade networks. He doesn't have the cash flow to actually raise an army to do anything about it. Uh. So that's a problem. Like as much as he'd like to go, uh, to war with the, the British, both to gain back Madras and to stop the British expansion up the coast to conduct, uh, to connect Madras to Bengal. He, he just he can't, he doesn't, he doesn't have it there. And so the Nizam is also worried about, uh, Mysore at this time as well. Mysore had been a relatively, like it was, a, it was a mid-sized power, uh, in India up until this crisis of the early 18th century. But it had really been taking advantage of um, the chaos to expand as much as possible and had grown to a fairly sizable uh, state. And this is almost entirely done under a ruler named um, Hyder Ali. And Hyder Ali was not technically the ruling family of Mysore, but in Mysore, again, the, the ruling family had faded into sort of a symbolic power within the state and really the head military commander was the one ruling the state overall okay shades of japan yeah very much so yeah very very similar so with Hyder ali at the at the helm they are taking over neighbors left and right and part of the reason that uh mysore felt so uh comfortable doing so was that they had a fairly good relationship with the mughal emperor whose name still carried a lot of weight and like the Mughals were, uh, Hyder at least, uh, and his family were Muslim in a majority, uh, at this time, Hindu nation. Um, so there was sort of a, a level of, um, we're closer to the emperor than some other places. Therefore we can kind of do what we want okay. mentality to it, uh, to go along with just the opportunistic, um, you know, taking advantage of a crisis mentality. 
Plus, he was an extremely effective military commander. Like, that can't be understated. He is a very good military leader. Hmm. So Hyderabad is also very worried about Mysore, right? And when they're looking at what they actually can pull off, they know that they're not going to be able to ally with Mysore because Mysore would like nothing better, honestly, than to take over Hyderabad. So as much as they don't like it, Hyderabad uh, looks to the company, holds their nose, and asks for a defensive uh, alliance with the company against Mysore really? because they're worried that they're going to be scooped up in this uh, this Mysorean expansion. Was the company doing anything expansionist up until now beyond what they already did? Well, they did want to extend up the coast to connect their two territories and were very open about the fact that they were planning to uh, do so militarily, like by force. But uh, would that have infringed upon Hyderabad's territory? No, not necessarily, but it would have cut them off from coast on the east uh, that wasn't controlled by Britain, Britain uh, right. or, or by the company, rather. So they still had access through other states that were India, independent Indian states to the coast. Um, those would be affected by this expansion. Okay. But because they hadn't been directly threatened, they were the, the lesser of two evils when compared to Madras. Or Mysore, sorry. Exactly. So Britain, uh, or rather the company, I keep saying Britain as though it's the state. And it's hard to remember it's not the state, but, you know, it's fuzzy borders Kim anyways. <laughs> the company and Hyderabad are kind of talking and the British kind of convince Hyderabad to maybe preemptively a little bit attack Mysore. <laughs> um with the support of company troops. So that's the deal with their with their alliance, right? Hyderabad couldn't raise their own army. They didn't have the money for it. So Britain will provide them military support as long as the first thing they do with it is put Mysore in its place. Check that expansion. And Mysore doesn't like this at all. I mean, obviously, but not just because it's a check on their power it also sees britain as like an outsider you know interfering with the 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 way of things because you know up until this point all of the all of the the chaos that mysore has taken advantage of has been kind of family business to a certain extent right like it's not really been because the british are there this is a situation where if there were no company involved in india mysore had a good chance at taking up a significant amount of the continent under its own uh, control, if it took up enough and got approval from the Mughal emperor, could maybe even face off against Maratha and make a play for the entire continent. Right. And here's Britain mucking that all up for them. So there's a little bit of extra, like, it's a little personal on that one. Yeah. They don't like it at all. So... 1767, the first Anglo-Mysore war begins. It, it, and it begins with this, this invasion into Mysore by Hyderabad. And initially, the war goes quite well for Mysore. Um, they're kind of not super concerned. The, the capital of, of Mysore is, is fairly deep into its territory. And uh, Hyderabad isn't making very quick progress through their territory necessarily. This South India, it's uh, not easy terrain to move through. It's slow going. So 
rather than meeting the the uh, company troops that are marching with Hyderabad, you know, in the middle of of their own march, Mysore just sends their troops straight for Madras. Oh, okay. And and it's nearly captured in this first push. Like it's a very strong push. And you know they get there. Or they 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 don't quite manage to get it under siege, but they get within spinning distance of Madras, right? And so things are looking really good for Mysore, except that Maratha has been watching all of this and they go, well, Mysore just marched all of their troops out of their territory. We're going to attack from the north into Mysore. And so Mysore has to pull their troops back. Well, you know, from from engagement with the British, which is costly, the, it lets up the pressure on the British so they can push back harder with Hyderabad. Hyderabad gets as far as Bangalore, which is like the secondary city in uh, in in Mysore at the time. But once they get there, instead of actually besieging the city, you know, Hyderabad has never really liked the British anyway, so they strike this deal with Mysore to flip sides against the British. And the two of them attack Britain together oh. while they manage to keep Maratha off in the north. There are some differences of opinion between Mysore and uh, uh, Hyderabad. The British come in and start bribing Hyderabad uh, uh, officials to turn back on Mysore again. <laughs> oh, wow. The British push through, ignoring all the cities and, uh, and use their navy to take the port city of Mangalore, which... Is different than Bangalore. Just keep that in mind. But this is a this is a major port city for Mysore. But then the Mysoreans turn around. They take it back from the British. They recover all the forts. That they, like it's it's back and forth, and all of this happens in two years. Oh wow! Everything I've I've described to you happens in two years. The first Anglo Mysore War is seventeen sixty seven to seventeen sixty nine. Finally, the British lose Mangalore. They get pushed back all the way to Madras. Madras actually goes under siege this time, and they strike a deal. They end the war with the Treaty of Madras. And the terms of this deal are not something that you're going to expect to hear me say, but this isn't a surrender. They end this war with Mysore and the company making a defensive treaty with each other against Maratha. <laughs> wow. That's a roller coaster. We have three more. We have three more Mysore Anglo wars to go through. <laughs> okay. It's 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 insane to a point where I feel like getting any more specific about any of this stuff would just lose the effect because it is so detailed and it's so much backstabbing and so many allegiance flips that it's kind of like no, just let it lie. Like this is what happened kind of thing, right? And it's it's so whirlwind like the amount of stuff that just happens in two years here is 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 boggling i hate to reach for a pop culture reference but if you've watched the show community <laughs> there's an episode involving night school yeah and this really sounds like that episode that's just gets confusing and who's even attacking who anymore yeah yeah, it really, really is. There's there's a lot of alliance making. It doesn't always seem for the... Like, when you dig into it, all of these moves have very 
like like you can see what precipitates each one of them they're made for very specific reasons but man it is hard to keep it all straight it's sort of like you're almost better off just looking at where things are at the beginning where things are at the end and just assuming that a whole bunch of nonsense happens in the middle yeah that is just very confusing for everybody involved one thing i'd like to ask yeah what were the casualties like in this first war that's a great question. I actually didn't look too closely at casualty numbers. The 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 army sizes are not terribly large. Yeah. I ask because it's the late 1700s. It's still very much I assume the the lineup in a line on a field type of fighting if they're having combat as opposed to anything that looks modern. And so I would guess not actually very many real casualties and and more of focus on just routing the enemy right yeah that's that's the general impression that i've gotten it's 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 that or sieges right just okay. holding cities hostage until you know you know people tap out basically uh but yeah the, the the casualties would have been relatively low most of the numbers i saw for armies when i did check were in like the low tens of thousands and that's for like the entire state that we're talking about, not per per battle or anything like that. Okay. So it's it's not it's not massive numbers. Uh, yeah, it's we're we're not far off from like Napoleonic wars and and you know fielding you know tens of thousands at a, a at a single battle or even even more at some points, um, but not not in this theater. That's not what this looks like at all. It's yeah. it's relatively low, um, but still from from all accounts like fairly fairly vicious like that's it's there's a lot of times where these battles do devolve into like hand-to-hand really uh rather than uh than uh yeah because i mean the the muskets they reload really slowly and um the the there is sometimes some disparity in how good the gun uh technology is between some of these states uh these major ones that we're talking about here i'll have relatively um contemporaneous technology to europe at the time so you don't have to worry too much there but like they're used to fighting people who are pretty okay with getting you know very up close and personal with sharp objects and so they they've had to become uh accustomed to it as well right so this this defensive treaty against maratha that's mainly because both the british and my source see maratha as their main enemy it's very clear that maratha is gearing up for a bigger invasion than the one that they sort of tested out during that war that uh, drew the mysorian troops away from madras so it's kind of like okay well we'll both protect each other if either of us gets attacked by maratha sound good yeah sounds good the next year maratha invades mysore the company immediately ignores everything in the treaty, refuses <laughs> to help whatsoever. Of course. And yeah, of course, number one, but also number two, they get pulled into their own war with Maratha. They just decide to fight it on their own separately from Mysore, which is really weird. Huh. Like, I don't know why they wouldn't have like at that point, at the very least gone, okay, yeah, we will work together. Um, I don't know. I don't want to read too deeply into the colonial psyche or anything like that, yeah. but you know, I have my suspicions. Yeah. Anyways, throughout the 1770s, there's wars back and forth between Mysore and Maratha. There's also 
other completely unrelated conflicts that are happening here where, uh, you know, little tiny states are being kind of uh, absorbed by all of these larger pr- players. All of them are slowly getting bigger and bigger. Um, the The entire continent is kind of consolidating into these four major powers, basically. Right. Now, the fact that the company didn't come to their aid is a major flag to uh, Hyder Ali that he just can't trust the British, right? Like he already wasn't terribly trustworthy or didn't find them terribly trustworthy, but like he saw this as like an active betrayal rather than just sort of a passive, you know, don't put too much faith in what they're going to say sort of thing, right? They made him a promise and they didn't follow through on it. Yeah, understandable. This whole period, again, I'm going to skip over some of it, but like honestly, Hyderabad, Maratha, Mysore, the company are all making secret alliances with each other behind each other's backs throughout this entire period and then breaking them secretly. And it all sort of comes to nothing a little bit. (laughs) The biggest development that comes out of this whole period actually is in 1778. Uh, And this is for the first time for reasons that are outside of India, because Hyder Ali, as I said, is a very uh, competent commander. He's also very clever. He thinks outside of the box as much as possible. And in 1778, there's a little war that starts up between Britain and France. It's one that like, I don't know, a lot of people don't necessarily, doesn't really tick off on a list when they're thinking of all the times that Britain and France have gone to war. Except keep in mind, 1778, that's actually two years after uh, American Declaration of Independence. This is that war where France was recognizing the United States as an independent state for the first time and helping to defend it navally against Britain right. in order to, you know, solidify its its independence, its statehood, right? Yeah. That's this war. It's happening right now. Okay. Haider Ali offers France his allegiance <laughs> in return for support against Britain. That's an interesting play. Yes, it is. I, I, I find it I find it interesting to see somebody playing this sort of like the 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 exact opposite game that was already being played in India, where he's going, I'll just play this out in proxy wars far across the ocean. Um I don't know. It's it's a really it's a really interesting dynamic to me. Not a lot of like not a lot comes of this allegiance, uh at least right away, but the symbolism of it infuriates the company. They are so incredibly upset by this move <laughs> because there's not really a lot of like concrete stuff that can come of it, right? Like France sends some commanders to help with training. There's a little bit of like cultural exchange, a little bit of technological exchange, but most of it is just kind of like for like. It's not as though they're they're you know making fast uh technological strides in this time period mysore is actually extremely wealthy extremely technologically developed in a lot of cases there's stuff that is more advanced in mysore than in europe Hmm. if anything what these this french training is giving them is the the centuries of experience in fighting the british yeah and what it's like to fight against the british that's the main um benefit of this training right and i would assume that the french would have a typically european view of people on the indian subcontinent at this point similar to uh similar to the british in some ways and so the amount of support 
that the French would be willing to directly give would also be similarly limited. Yes and no. Um, I think there. I think their support. The the limitation of their support in this particular sense is actually more limited by the uh, just just grievous state of French uh, finances in oh. this period of time. Are they having some sort of uh, problems? They're having some money problems. Uh, I'm sure they sorted those out within a few years. <laughs> um, you know, I I, I think. At the, at the risk of painting with a very, very, very broad brush, I think that um, at least in this period, um, France was a little bit more willing to meet non-European powers on more similar terms than the British were. Hmm. It's a slight difference. I'm not trying to give them a cookie here, sure. but uh, they, they tended to do a little bit better. That's all I'm trying to say. And they, they did seem willing to support Mysore to some extent. It's just that they were also fighting their own war against Britain. And one of these places is thousands of kilometers away. And the other one is directly across the channel and, you know, priorities. Yeah. Th this allegiance with, with France is taken with exactly the attitude that it was given by the British, which is incredible insult. <laughs> Uh, they did not appreciate it at all. And, you know, things had been rocky ever since the end of the last war. Anyways, I say that as though it was a long time ago, becoming a French ally basically gave the company the excuse it needed to start conflict with Mysore again. Mm. And in 1780, uh, war breaks out once again, uh, specifically when Britain invades the port city of Mahe, which is both uh, within Mysore territory and one of the few remaining uh, technically French ports in India. So they have property in that port. It is nominally French. It is technically like protected on behalf of the French by Mysore. Okay. So in terms of like choosing your target, it makes a lot of sense for the British to go here um, in that they can claim that it's part of the Anglo-French war. You know, sorry, Mysore, but you've gotten caught in the crosshairs sort of thing. But also you are allied with our enemy and, you know, like they, they get to send that message to both parties simultaneously with this invasion. Yeah. Once again, the war begins after that invasion of, of uh, Mahe begins very strongly for Mysore, like decisive victories against the British. They move very, very quickly. And the first two years of the war go quite well in favor of Mysore to the point that like this is not a war that the British are expecting to win by about two years in. Wow. And then in 1782... Haider Ali dies of uh, cancer. Um, it's by all accounts relatively sudden. It's just a, I believe it was on his back or something like that. A, a tumor grew very, very quickly and he was dead within a few weeks. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's it's just one of those quirks of history. Sometimes these things happen. Uh, it's not a, you know, you don't, you don't get a glorious final stand. Something else comes along. When this happens, um, the rulership, uh, the leadership of Mysore falls to Haider's son, uh, Tipu Sultan, who 
has been fighting wars against the British. He commanded his first battle against British forces when he was 15 under his father. Not bad. Tipu Sultan was raised to fight Britain. It is his singular goal in life. There is a Hannibal-style promise made to a father about a foreign enemy (laughs) drive behind this man. You can't hate Britain much more than he did. And he was a competent ruler. Uh, He was as competent a commander as his father. Maybe not quite as strong, but like, again, he grew up with this stuff and experiences everything. The war between uh, Britain and France uh, ends in 1783. And that's really where the the war in India turns around. Britain's resources are freed up to send reinforcements to India to support the... Uh, to support Madras. Similarly, now that the war is over, the French kind of go like, oh, there's not a lot we can do. We just signed a treaty with Britain. Like, our hands are kind of tied on this. We can't give you anything in the way of, like, material aid at this point. So the next year or so, the war kind of turns into a bit of a stalemate. Neither side is winning anything. So it sort of sticks at a spot where, overall, Mysore was the victorious party. But the last two years, nothing moved. And so when they sign a peace treaty in 1784, the Treaty of Mangalore, uh, they go with something that's known as status quo antebellum, uh, which is Latin for the same as before the war. Mm -hmm. All borders are put back to where they were before the war. Any captured territory is returned, et cetera, et cetera. And that's fine. Uh, There's also a non-interference clause or a non-intervention clause in any neighboring wars, which is basically code for uh, Mysore would very much like to take over some territory to the south and they don't want the British involved. But there's a bit of a problem. See, with this war, Mysore had done well enough that they actually took a lot of fairly high level British prisoners. Oh. And Tipu Sultan didn't want to give them back. (laughs) He wanted to continue keeping them hostage and for some reason didn't, I I don't know if it was a willful ignorance, if it was a misunderstanding, but he didn't seem to think that this treaty meant he would have to give them back. He was starting a collection. Essentially. Um, You know, know, this is as good a time as any to, to mention that. I don't I don't want this episode to be a, a hagiography of Tipu Sultan, as interesting as the man is. He has a, an extremely uh, complex legacy in India to this day. And, and extremely complex is code for he did a lot of bad stuff. Mm. The fact that he kept British prisoners longer than he should have is maybe not the most surprising thing. Uh, he was also, you know, he, he, he was well known to be like extremely brutal to the territories that he took up took over when uh when expanding uh often people who were captured in those uh battles were sold into slavery Mm -hmm. uh there were forced uh conversions to uh to islam that being said there are also people who say that a lot of these stories that I'm, i'm bringing up now are either fabricated or exaggerated by the british as part of a smear campaign against the only person who managed to cut a treaty on equal footing in the 18th century in in India. Plausible. And so it's kind of like, I don't know. 
do I believe that this guy was smeared by the British? Yeah. Do I also believe that maybe he did some terrible stuff in the name of expansion? Also, yeah. It's extremely possible. Yeah. Likely even. So where that needle actually falls, it's really, really hard to say. But suffice it to say that it was, you know, keeping those British officers made for um, just just S tier propaganda in Britain. <laughs> like this, this man has done this to our prisoners. Here are reports of people who have been captured by him. Here are all the, the horrors he's inflicted and blah, 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 blah. Right. It's really easy uh, to kind of sway public uh, opinion in your direction when you have that sort of material to work with. Right. Definitely. And like, you know, even at the end of the second war, Tipu Sultan is not he's not making any bones about the fact that like he's going to go back to war against the company at some point. Like as soon as he's got the opportunity, that's the plan here. Okay. He's just just a really interesting guy. He took uh he took the symbol of the tiger as like his own personal sort of uh branding, I suppose, uh symbol, I I guess. Mm-hmm. Um emblem works that's a much better word but like also literally symbol as in like all of his troops wore like tiger stripe motifs and like he had swords that were in scabbards that had tiger stripes on them and remember the tiger statue that i mentioned earlier right Right. like he he was known uh people say stuff like he was known as i kind of wonder about like how much he wanted to be known as and how much this is organic but supposedly he was known as the tiger of mysore so he was hip to branding it worked it was it stuck it sticks to this day um there's a there's a whole story that i frankly don't believe about him you know killing a tiger with a with only a dagger that that goes along with this whole legend Uh that i yeah eh, i'm skeptical but sure why not um anyways really really interesting guy I, th- I think I, I think I mentioned it in brief in brief, but I did want to call attention to something uh, more explicitly, which is that the the treaty that Tipu Sultan signs with Britain at the end of the Second Anglo-Mysore War, it's actually the last time an Indian power signed a treaty with Britain or a British power on equal footing. Period. Wow. Which gives you a bit of an idea of where the rest of the story is going to go. But I I did want to call attention to that. That's part of the allure of Tipu Sultan, right? Is the anti-colonial aspect of his his personality. Because he could be just the worst sort of bastard. Which, from all accounts, he kind of was. But, like, as a national symbol for India, what do you do with the guy who both persecuted Hindus for their religion and was the last best effective measure against British colonialism. That's a complicated figure to work into your mythology. This is not a one-note person that is just easy to slot in. Especially a place with as many varied and complex mythologies as India. Mm-hmm. There's lots of lots of much cleaner figures in their history that that he would compare unfavorably to but yeah still yeah i agree uh and and politically to this day like it's 
like he is he is currently like like to like in this year a figure that depending on which side of the aisle you're on in indian politics you might have a completely different opinion of which i find very interesting mm-hmm. uh anyway let's let's continue with our story britain has been more or less bested twice uh now in these wars or at least fought to a standstill which when you're britain you consider a failure mm-hmm the British government, and actually the government this time, not just the company, decides that the company needs more support than they've been getting. And they send a real actual bona fide British commander to India to look after the situation. Just a commander? Oh, no, not just commander, a general. And not just any general, but General Cornwallis, uh, who you may know from such battles as Yorktown, where he lost to the Americans. Um, I kind of went into this suspecting that they sent Cornwallis to India as something of a punishment right. for the War of Independence. It doesn't seem like that's actually the case. Um, I, I constantly have to reevaluate how uh britain at the time thought about america at the time which is not much um yeah they they didn't they didn't care that much that they lost um no cornwallis went there because he was known as an effective overseas commander and or or or, like in a in a military sense not a not a rank sense he's made governor of india um in 1786 which is rich when you know there isn't really a British government there, but okay, sure, let's roll with it, right? And he goes there essentially preparing for war with Mycor. He's going to fight Tipu Sultan. That's why he's there. They're just waiting for the excuse, right? Right. And in 1789, they finally get it. There's a there's a bit of a dust up. There, there's this kingdom called uh Travancore. It's in the very south of uh India on the, the west coast. So more like towards uh, Cochin, um, they start kind of creeping into Mysore territory, uh, Mysore territory, sorry. And Mysore wants to defend themselves, which is understandable. Travancore says, well, this is our land, so we're going to take it. So there's a bit of a border dispute here, except that Britain also comes in and says, oh, by the way, Travancore is under our protection, so you're not allowed to fight them. Hmm. Mysore says, well, this is a defensive action. Like, we're defending our borders. So whatever alliance you have with Travancore doesn't really apply here. What are you talking about? And Cornwallis kind of goes, I don't care. We're going to do a war now. Are you saying you want to fight me? (laughs) Yeah, essentially. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. I was too busy polishing my muskets. (laughs) Um, You know, it's just, it's just... This is the sort of thing that would have been a a regional border scrap if it wasn't for them looking for a very deliberate excuse to attack Mysore. And again, Mysore is is extremely expansionistic. It's not as though they wouldn't have gotten a different excuse at some point, but it's very much looking for an excuse, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So Cornwallis is a very, like, he's a new caliber officer, right? Like, this is not the sort of thing that uh that uh, Tipu Sultan has been dealing with so far um he doesn't mess around with getting bogged down with weird alliances uh any of that stuff like he's not 
he's not going through that. He just takes a whole bunch of British regulars and goes straight for Bangalore, takes Bangalore, like lays siege to it and then captures the city and then moves immediately on the uh, Mysore capital of uh, Seringapatam. And this is not something that Mysore is used to. Like usually when the British open, they're like taking port cities or they're marching in from the north with allies, things like that. They aren't entirely prepared for this type of action. And it really takes them by surprise. There is some fairly meaningful uh, um, resistance that's put up by the Mysorean armies. But, you know, for the most part, it's it's more notable because of like interesting tactics they used and like the fact that they slowed things down than necessarily like you know real victories in this war right um one of the most notable things is uh my sword actually been developing them for a while they started under hyder ali but they got very proficient at using rocket troopers which were soldiers who fired rockets at the enemies rather than using you know, like cannons and things like that. So they're relatively portable. They're relatively easy to aim. And we're talking about like the the ones from, from Mysore, at least they're, they're made of iron tubes so they can withstand a pretty decent amount of gunpowder pressure within them. They've got a range of like two kilometers. What? Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that form of weapon went back this far well it's essentially i mean the mysoreans didn't invent it like keep in mind they are very close to china yeah i was assuming china lots of other places are using rockets their main uh innovation is number one some of the stuff they use to stabilize it so it makes it a little bit easier to aim and number two the material that they're making it out of because most rockets up to this point in time would be made out of uh you know often like cardstock essentially like think like firecrackers more than you know rpg yeah yeah and so like they they also have really interesting tactics for like figuring out ranging like they they had a basically they had a um a way to calculate angle based on uh approximate distance and the diameter of the rocket and they had a quick calculation you could do in your head and you would you would use that to find the optimal angle to hit that distance because the pressure of the the rockets like the the, the or sorry the mag, the manufacturer of the rockets was relatively standardized so you could expect every rocket with a, an approximate diameter uh, of the same amount to fly the same distance okay made it really easy for for rockets uh or for troopers carrying rockets to set up somewhere aim accurately and leave again whereas the idea of like setting up like artillery um emplacements is very long and very difficult yeah and once you're dug in there you're not really moving out again very easily so you know at any given time the mysore army would contain between like 1200 and like 5000 people using these rockets to fight they were they were pretty substantial and like you know again yeah there's also like traditional cannons and things mixed in there but like the brit the the british armies had never really seen anything quite like this any rockets that they had at home were barely firecrackers you know they're made of cardboard essentially um and when you have a, a rocket like that 
it can't withstand the pressure to get the range uh, or to deliver as heavy a, a charge, essentially. Yeah. This isn't enough to win the uh, to win the, the battles, though, right? Mysore is defeated in 1792. So again, we're talking of a two-year war, very quick, very decisive. Cornwallis isn't messing around here. One of the first terms he insists on in the surrender is uh, the ransom of two of Tipu's sons. Really? Yeah. I think he had about 18 sons. Oh. Like, there are a lot of sons to choose from here. But, point being, he's trying to send a message. He also ends up taking, uh, and this is this is known as the Treaty of Seringapatam, um, he, he, he really tries to strike a balance of what to do with Mysore's territory, because it is quite large at this point in time. But Cornwallis isn't company, right? He's military. And he's fought through this area. He's seen how difficult it is to, to traverse. He's seen how difficult it must be to administrate. And he goes, okay, well, on one hand, I don't think we should take all over take this all over because it's going to be such a drain on the company's resources that it'll probably stop lo- or it'll probably start losing money. Right. And what do we know about the company? Can't lose money. But on the other hand, if they lose the entire territory intact but weaken the entire military, that's going to leave it very easy pickings for Britain's other major enemy in this area, the Maratha Empire. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to just leave it on a plate for Maratha. So he ends up settling on taking about half of Mysore's holdings and turning them into sort of vassal states. But he's very careful about which which territories he takes, mainly trying to reduce the amount of coastline that Mysore can, uh, uh, controls, because that's economic strength, right? Yeah, I was going to say probably coastal areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, let's jump back to Europe for a second, because there's a story that I've told in a very specific way a couple of times on this show before that I'd like to expand on a little bit. In 1798, uh, and we are talking post, uh, French revolution. Now we are in the middle of the revolutionary wars. Uh, and you know, for a refresher, if anyone doesn't remember the rest of Europe went, Hey, wait, you have to have a King and all started attacking France at the same time. There was this this little general, maybe you heard of him, Napoleon Bonaparte, at the time, still just a general, uh, had just wrapped up fighting in Italy. And it was kind of a fragile point in his uh, in his um, career because leadership, which at this point was under the uh, department, so sort of a more of a board, it wasn't like a single president or anything like that, um, leadership was like a little worried that he could probably had what it would take to you know take over all of france correctly so yeah um but people liked him so much that reining him in too hard could also turn people against uh the leadership so they weren't entirely sure how to best handle that and they sort of just gently invited him to come back to paris after italy had been conquered and you know baffling move uh napoleon said no i'm going to egypt yeah and that's essentially how I tend to tell that story. And usually somebody will go like, well, why would he go there? And I'd say, well, it's mainly to help control uh, trade to Britain from the Indian Ocean, right? And that's true because, it, you know, they had been bringing it through the Mediterranean. Going around Africa is a very long journey. And that's partially correct. 
Um, but there is another part of this story that I don't usually tell um, because I didn't realize the significance uh, for a very long time. The other reason that Napoleon tries to take Egypt is that he's trying to establish a route by which France can start sending soldiers to India in order to explicitly support Tipu Sultan in really? Mysore against Britain. Okay. He sees destabilizing Britain in India as more important to the revolutionary, revolutionary wars than fighting Britain in Europe. Because so much of their economic power comes from the uh, East India Company. And that's where the largest base of East India Company power lies. And he sees Tipu Sultan as the best chance of beating that. This guy seems like it might be okay at strategy. <laughs> Teach us all a thing or two. Um, he's, th this is such an explicit aim that when he lands in Cairo, he sends a letter to Tipu Sultan that says, we have taken Egypt and I am going to be sending you 15,000 troops as soon as I am able. Wow. This letter is intercepted by the British. Oh, no. Which is, which is bad for Tipu Sultan. Yep. Just to wrap up the, the Egypt story, he doesn't end up being able to send those troops because he's defeated by the Battle of the Nile uh, by uh, Horatio Nelson in that same year, 1798, which effectively ends, you know, meaningful French control in Egypt. Uh, you know, they still kick around there for a little while, but like that's the end of the like the dream, right? Mm -hmm. This also has the effect of massively ticking off the, the British in regards to specifically Tipu Sultan. Because not only is this guy a thorn in their side, but now he's been collaborating with Napoleon, who they see as probably the worst thing to happen to Europe since possibly the Mongol horde. I think a lot of Europe felt that too. I think so. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily unwarranted, but you know, it, it sort of puts things into perspective a little bit, right? Essentially, the first thing that they do is send uh, one uh, Lord Arthur Wellesley uh, to India. Oh, uh, you, you might know him a little bit better by his later title, uh, the Duke of Wellington. Uh, you know, the, the man who defeated Napoleon many, many times throughout Europe and then finally at Waterloo. Mm -hmm. That Lord Wellington is sent to India to deal with Tipu Sultan. Wow. Okay. That's pulling up big guns. Yeah. They're not messing around anymore. Essentially, the fourth Anglo-Mysore War begins in 1798, the same year, as soon as Wellesley gets there. And the entire pretext is, well, you've allied with Napoleon. <laughs> because Napoleon sent him a letter? Well, I mean, there is a lot more to this allegiance that's that's happening than like, I mean, the, the lines of communication between France and Mysore have been open uh, ever since that uh, the the war in seven that ended in 1783. OK, um, so there's been continued uh, uh, there's been continued uh, communication over the last 15 or 20 years, um, you know, talk talking isn't illegal. You know, it's fine. <laughs> uh, in fact, in the 1790s. 
the tiger that I talked about at the beginning with the pipes in it, mm-hmm. that is actually built for Tipu Sultan by French uh, uh, artisans oh. as a gift and as an acknowledgement of his renowned hatred for Britain. <laughs> <laughs> And his nickname as the Tiger of Mysore. See, it all it all comes together. Um, no, it's it's all it's all. Yeah, they, they've been talking for a long time. It's not as though the letter was the only thing. The letter was the smoking gun of what they suspected all along, which was that Mysore would ally with basically any of Britain's enemies as long as it meant working against Britain. It meant that Mysore would continue being a problem as long as Mysore existed. Mm. And as much as you kind of look back on where we started, which was Britain had a couple of little pockets along the coast and they wanted to extend northward a little bit and extend it to where we are now, which is we want to take over the entire subcontinent of India and just sort of cringe at that whole thing. As much as you might feel that way, you can't dispute their logic here. They're not wrong. Tipu Sultan will continue fighting them as long as he has breath in his body. That's accurate. That is a good assessment of the situation. Yeah. It would, so it would be reductivist to to say that they were possibly content with small holdings along the one coast until someone got too friendly with France, and then damn it, we're going to clean out the whole place. But it still is a fun way to look at it. It is. A, I mean, I, I think I think if anything and this this comes up way too often on this show, but I think if anything, you know, it's that it's that thing where we're, we're you're playing civilization and you're like, I'm going to win on culture. And then somebody <laughs> somebody invades one of your cities and it's like, well, I guess I'm going to destroy that entire civilization. Now I have no choice. This is the only just thing to do. Guess I have to salt your fields. You forced my hand in this. I have no choice. It's it's kind of that thing, right? You know? Except it's happening to real people. And that makes yeah. it less fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, 1798, war begins. And the numbers this time just aren't in uh, my source favor. Like, we're talking, like, between 3 to 1 and 4 to 1 troop numbers against Mysore. And it's under the Duke of Wellington. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like 10 to 15 years earlier than he's actually that Duke of Wellington. But still, he's that guy. Um, All that is really worth saying about this war, even though it, you know, technically stretches over the period of of, uh, several months uh, spanning two calendar years, is that the Duke goes to Seringapatam and puts it under siege and they break through the walls on the 4th of May, 1799 in the battle of Seringapatam and Tipu Sultan is in the city at the time and he's killed in the fighting. Uh, he charged for the breach in the walls and nobody quite knows who killed him, but he was dead at the end of the battle. Hmm. A lot less of a war, a lot more of just an invasion. Yeah. And then the Duke of Wellington lets his soldiers loot the city. Oh. And that's not the most unusual thing. It happens. It's a fairly common part of war. What normally happens, though, is they kind of put a lid on the looting yeah. within a couple hours. Yeah. Seringapatam is looted unofficially 
for three days before command puts a lid on it. Yeah. So there were some atrocities there. I've belabored the point about how bad a city being looted after a siege is on this show. Um, it's bad. It's one of the worst places in the world to be. It's it's it can't be overstated. Um, yeah, atrocities is correct. Uh, lots of things stolen. Um, lots of lives ruined in many many ways. Um, things like, for example, uh, Tipu's throne, which would have been made of gold, yeah, uh, gone, just just broken up into pieces and taken by common soldiers, whoever got there first. Um, after those three days, then the official looting starts, <laughs> which is where the government goes in and collects, you know, collects trophies uh, and things like that. And that's where something like Tipu's Tiger would have been taken because it was made of wood. It's not, you know, intrinsically valuable from its materials would have been taken and carted back to Britain and placed in a museum. And, you know, people can look at it. And I believe it's in the Victorian Albert Museum today uh, in London. Hmm. um still there behind glass um and i mean this is not unusual i mean that's that's just how invasions go this is how wars go but you know it's still it's still just such a a clear symbol of the the type of colonialism that's happening here and i think in a lot of ways it really goes back to those mandates of the east india company right keep growing keep gaining power keep being profitable yeah and use force to do so whenever you need to um that that tacit permission permeates this entire this this entire story um in in really terrible ways so the Remaining territory of Mysore is essentially split between the East India Company. So, uh, you know, um, it's not even really expanding Madras at this point. They're just essentially ruling like a full quarter of India or something like that at this point. So it's split between the East India Company, Maratha, Hyderabad gets some. And then there's a core left around just the cities of Seringapatam and uh, the city of Mysore, where... Um, Rule is taken away from any of Tipu Sultan's sons and returned to the, remember we talked about the sort of symbolic or relatively yeah. symbolic uh, rulers. It's returned to them. Uh, it's the, the Wajiar family. Um, and in an interesting turn of, of events, that version of Mysore, that very, very small reduced version, is actually going to last all the way through the rest of the East India Company's tenure. It's going to last all the way through the British Raj, and it is still going to be an independent, albeit, you know, vassal state to Britain in 1947 when, oh, wow. when India becomes independent. It, it'll, it'll be uh, absorbed into India. It will pledge itself to India at that point in time. But the functional power as like a contestant on like the stage of India is ended in 1799 with this battle. There's no going back from that. Yeah. Wow. Over the next 20 years or so, uh, by 1818, actually, uh, Britain kind of mops up the rest of India. There's a pretty prolonged battle with uh, Maratha, but they never really push back on the on the British at all. Um, they're kind of just they kind of just lose slower than other smaller places. Okay. And with uh, with with Maratha's defeat in 1818, um, that's the last meaningful state level resistance to British rule in India. 
you know, you could continue uh, carrying that forward. There's uh, sort of more ground level resistance. There's there's uh, uh, sick, uh, uh, a sick Anglo war uh, that takes place uh, sort of low level over the next few decades as the Sikh community uh, fights back against British rule. In 1857, um, the, the British crown actually steps in and takes away uh, rule from the company and uh, takes on direct rule of India. You know, all of that extends out from here. But, you know, that's... I think I think um, that's a little bit outside the the bounds of the story I wanted to necessarily tell because what I what I find alluring about Tipu Sultan specifically is his sort of agency I suppose yeah. in this whole thing that seems missing from the rest of the story I, I sometimes see him categorized as a freedom fighter and that rubs me the wrong mm. way. I don't like that necessarily. Um, freedom fighter to me always kind of implies that somebody is already conquered. Yeah, you know, he wasn't fighting, and is maybe to to gain freedom. Yeah, rather than just defending. And I'm not saying like as we talked about that the man wasn't blameless. He did a lot of terrible stuff, mm-hmm. but there's 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 that agency there that seems like one of the main objectives of colonialism time and again to quash you can continue to have resistance you can continue to have objections but without that level of agency without that level of initiative um, without that level of legitimacy there's very little you can do and that seems so intentional to me it's the thing that's built into it Maybe not on like an individual personal level. Maybe there wasn't anyone going, we need to stop Mysore because that's the thing standing in the way of us subjugating India. But all of these things come together to cause that anyways. Mm -hmm. It's a weird little chain of events. And again, each step, you can see why each party is making the, the decisions they are, whether or not you like them. But the net effect is, yeah, the Raj. That's 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 where all of this points. I think that's where I want to leave the story. I, I, I as I said, I did really want to focus on Tipu uh, in the main. Um, one side note I, I wanted to mention is about the the rockets. Um, I, I think all of this is summed up even better than the tiger um, when you look at what happened to the Mysorean rockets, which is. That in 1799, when the city is taken, one of the things that's looted by the government, the official looting, is a cache of these rockets. And they're taken back to Britain, where a man named Sir William Congreve has a chance to examine them. And then there's some tricky language stuff that happens here, where you'll see sentences like, the inventor, Sir William Congreve, designed the Congreve rockets <laughs> after, after examining uh, Mysorean rockets. And like, hmm, that's, that's a way you can put it. Sure. Congreve's rockets, after, I don't know, five, six years of working on them, can get maybe 1.4 kilometers. So not <laughs> as far as the Mysorean ones. Yeah. They are made out of worse quality iron so they often burst 
they're inferior in accuracy. Um, they're unable to train their troops to use them properly. They're an oddity during the Napoleon, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Like they're kind of, you know, they use them. They're psychologically uh, effective. Um, a lot of commanders sort of write them off as a novelty, though. But they're called Congreve rockets for the next fifty years, <laughs> and it's just sort of like, guys, like you know, he didn't invent it, right? Like. Like, I get that they said that back then, but we don't have to talk about it that way now. Yeah. Right? Y'all know that, right? Anyways, it's just, it's just for me very symbolic about the sort of looting that takes place after a battle like this. Like, it's not just about the gold, although it is very much about the gold. Um, it's, it's just the, it's that cartoon of the, I made this, um, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, there's so just, much of that happens, and it's just built into the whole thing. It's embarrassing. It's just that's sad. That's a great way of putting it. Actually, yeah, I, I 100% agree. Invent your own rockets, dude. Like, you're, come you're, on. You're a big conquering nation. You won. Congratulations. And now you're trying to pretend that their superior armaments are your own invention. And yours are worse. That's just pathetic. The quality of life in Mysore at the height of it, sort of 1760s, 1770s, was the stuff that Europe could only aspire to. The average income was five times the minimum living wage. Wow. It was extremely, like it was doing extremely well. Like this is not, I, I don't know. That's the, that's the, that's the myth of, of colonialism, right? Is we're going into these places and yes, there's, you know, it's going to be messy business, but we're improving things for them. <laughs> yeah. And it just never happens time. And again, I look at it and it doesn't happen. It, um, and that's, that's got to make the, the legacy of Tipu Sultan even more complicated because that you, you automatically get into the what if with oh, that particular element and how it could have impacted the, the development of the subcontinent's future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, and, and, you know, to, to be, to be fair and honest about it, there's, there's, there are absolutely downsides to that line of, of speculation, of course. Sure. But again, you know, it's not as though British rule works out great for India. So I don't know. It's it's just it's a complicated thing to wrestle with. And I think all of this brings me back to where I started, which is, you know, this this idea of, of reading these books and feeling OK with just sort of turning my brain off and cheering for the hero. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I it, it's 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 so minute that it's laughable in the face of like actual consequences of british colonialism throughout the world and yet it's it's funny how also pervasive it is to the point where it becomes mundane to the point where i kind of go i don't know if i'm gonna like that book or not because of it yeah like, that's weird that's really weird to think about yeah it's just <sighs> such a normalized thing that you just uh, i don't know mm -hmm. those atrocities might might you know stain my fiction enjoyment it's it's so strange it's so strange but anyways that's you know that's the 
that's the story of how you know a, a couple a couple people that were mad at britain for expanding made britain expand more and uh <laughs> it was definitely their fault and, i think you know leads to the entire continent just just completely under the thumb of the british empire that's a very interesting story that i i had the sense that it was a complicated transition but yeah and and that's that's the problem i think with with histories from other parts of the world where that that base isn't laid at all for us um it is it is very much on us for not wanting to engage with it uh sometimes i think because it is very easy to go ah a bunch of complicated stuff happened and then the company changed to the empire and you know then uh independence and just sort of write off swaths and, and centuries as as well it's complicated and and uh i am I'm, I'm hoping to sort of start chipping away at that um partially for the show but like just partially for me like i want to do better than that so for sure uh this is a this is the first step that i'm feeling uh i'm feeling good about taking so that's our story today uh any other final thoughts or i suppose oh that's the uncomfortable thing has the topic mm-hmm. of returning that uh hilarious organ to the indian state come up oh of course it, and it's just as complicated as anything else in this uh in this story i mean right so there, there's there's a few different uh points of view on it one is that you know it's uh it's something that wouldn't exist to this day if it hadn't been preserved in a museum because museums in india didn't really exist and it was wood and it would probably be gone mm-hmm. there's a point of view that like nobody would really care about it uh there's also people who go it's not necessarily about the object itself it's about the symbolism of what it represents and uh you know to this day it has not been repatriated and uh repatriating anything from the british museum is is next to impossible um it's uh is there also the view as john oliver elucidated that's ours now and you're not having it back Essentially, it would actually take a... So the official policy of the British Museum is that they do not repatriate items. And it would take a it would take an act of parliament to change that uh, as a broad policy. Oh, my. Um, they have started looking at repatriating very specific items, but there is a really weird requirement involved, um, which let's... Let's call it what it is. It's designed to pre- prevent repatriation. Right. So you have to prove that the object in question still means the same thing today to the culture it would be repatriated to as it would have at the time it was taken. Wow. Wow. Thank, thanks, Britain. Exactly. What do all these items have in common? They've been taken from people whose cultures have been irrevocably changed by comp uh, by contact with the british empire basically by definition which of these which of these cultures could possibly prove that how do you even go about proving that what's the what what evidence do you submit in a lot of cases these cultures don't even necessarily still exist in the same form like there is still you know a Mysore like there's there is the, those those places still exist it existed until 1947 in terms of a uh continuity of uh 
you know, stewardship, I suppose. They're even uh, descendants of Tipu Sultan. Um, so, you know, you could maybe sort of make some arguments there. But like that's that's in India. There are other parts of the world that are far less well um, documented than that. And I'm not saying that's well documented again by design. Right. Mm hmm. So it's it's a really tricky thing. Uh, there's there's other people who don't want the tiger back because they don't think it'll be, uh, you know, put in its proper context. They're afraid that the Indian government will turn it into basically just a symbol of defiance against Britain without properly contextualizing it in uh, the story of Mysore, which is a valid concern, I suppose. Like, you know, it, it's just you're never going to approach something like this and have a lot of people agree on the best course of action. It is always going to be complicated to the point of inaction. And, and that's and that's part of the legacy of colonialism, right? Is yeah. a very complicated um, relationship with colonizers. There, there are people who are very grateful for Britain having come and, and, and taken over. You know, like that that is a that is a pervasive and valid viewpoint in certain segments of uh indian culture um how, how do you how do you reckon with that in in opposition to this you know holding him up as a as a an opponent an opponent of colonialism as a as a freedom fighter if you want to use that terminology yeah. i don't know it, like it's it's hard enough getting people to agree on broad simple things you, you enter this level of complexity to it, and I, I, I really don't know. And the British Museum is never going to make it easy. No. Um, now, mind you, Tipu's uh, sword, which was in its tiger-striped uh, uh, saber, uh, or sorry, nice. scabbard, um, the one that he died with, uh, was actually in a private collection, and that was purchased and repatriated to India. Oh. So it's possible. It can be done. It, um, there needs to be a will there, though. And... I listen, I've looked at stuff in the collection of the British Museum online. Who hasn't? They have amazing stuff. It's because they've stolen all the best stuff and put it in the same place. Yeah. An institution like that doesn't. It, it's effectively suicide to change their policy on that. Oh, yeah. That's it's tearing themselves apart. And organizations like that are meant to be self-perpetuating not and and preserving like by definition a museum is for preservation and you know that is that is a that is a powerful force to fight against it really really is quite true so anyways i don't know if that clarified anything whatsoever about the situation because it is it is complicated and i do not fully understand it but that's that's my that's my best understanding of repatriation in this particular context. Um, it's messy and it's hard and it's just some people work really, really hard to try and make headway their entire lives without really doing a whole lot. Uh, the, the rightness, the, the morality of it, you know, completely aside, it's just, you are, you are fighting against the most deeply entrenched, uh, institutions in the very, like, in a very, like, static sense of the word institution so yeah it's it's just tough it's about as complicated as i was expecting yeah well anyways that's uh that's enough i think today about uh, mysore and about tipu sultan and his tiger and colonialism and oh boy this was a heavy one but uh thank you so much for joining me really appreciate you having me here today well thank you for having me mm -hmm.
Tipu Sultan was unambiguously defeated by the British. It took a once-in-a-generation military genius, the support of both Maratha and Hyderabad in that final war, and somewhere around 100,000 troops. But Tipu Sultan was killed and Mysore diminished. While his record was a complex one, tarnished by atrocities, his legacy of resistance to British rule was ultimately a very long-lasting one. Along with some others who fought for independence during the company's takeover in the 18th century, Tupu Sultan's portrait is painted on the original copy of the Indian Constitution. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I wasn't able to provide a casualties number for the First Anglo-Mysore War. I haven't found a definitive number, it's actually a little bit tricky to nail down, but it looks like the answer is somewhere in the six to 8,000 range of casualties for Mysore, and only a few hundred for the East India Company. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blusky, and this has been HI101.